to rephrase something you said, Ilan, about how kind of prescient um, Orwell was in presenting this blueprint, the way I'd put it is that he saw the essence of totalitarianism. And that is just pure, pure psychopathy. Hello, and welcome back to another Mind Matters show, everybody. This week, we're going to be talking about a film that is based on the 1948, 1949, depending on where you read it, published book by George Orwell called 1984. And in 1984, filmmaker Michael Radford wrote and directed a version of this prescient novel that we got to rewatch last night and just wow is all I have to say. Well, I have a, a lot more to say actually about it, but let me start. Over. Let me start with wow first because uh, I had uh, I had read the novel um, a few decades before and had seen the film uh, at least twenty five years ago, and. Having rewatched it yesterday, and with with all of the kinds of events and developments that we're seeing unfold in the past few years, especially, uh, and reading so many articles where observers and analysts were uh, making mention of 1984 uh, to help explain the types of uh, abuses of language. Uh, references to the eradication of history, uh, the various um, ways in which totalitarianism is uh, being seen to emerge, uh, particularly in the West, um, to, to see the film again and to recognize how insightful Orwell was um, and how insightful the filmmaker Michael Radford was in adapting the novel, which is uh, keeps very close uh, to the spirit of the book, uh, was quite uh, quite profound. It wasn't just one or two or three things that were on point. It was twenty things. It was dialogue coming out of the mouths of the characters. It was the deep spirited. Uh, sentiment of those who were part of the the party of Ingsoc or English socialism, the totalitarian uh, future vision that uh, that Orwell could see, um, even just living through post-war England uh, in the forties and fifties, um, that that came to fruition uh, and. And realization in this story. Uh, so there are many things to unpack about this one film. Uh, if you've seen it a long time ago or have read the book, uh, we can't recommend it enough as a kind of a cornerstone um, text uh, to help explain the phenomena that we've been describing on the show, particularly in the last uh, six to eight um, show episodes. Uh, it is a kind of a, an instruction manual for the, the thinking uh, that's involved in, in 
political totalitarian systems and the 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 pushback or the thought processes of uh, individuals who are trying to maintain some semblance of their own humanity, their own grip on reality, that um, that totalitarian systems seek to crush. Uh, so a very powerful film, and I think I'll uh, open it up right there for further discussion. Okay. <laughs> um, I'd seen it several years ago. Uh, I'd seen it a couple times. I read the read the book a few times too, but it's been at least several years since I've seen the movie, and I'll just share a few observations about it. One thing that I remembered was that when I first saw it, I think I'd read the book once and then seen the movie, probably as a teenager. And when I first saw it, my memory of it was that it was just very dark and drab and like not not visually pleasing to look at, right? I thought, oh man, it's that, what, what a dirty place this is. And I, and I hadn't picked that up from the book. The first time I'd read the book, I hadn't picked up on the... Um, like the the depressed like poverty level conditions essentially of what's going on and how how shabby everything was but um but then i eventually read the book again and saw that that's actually accurate and one of the one of the things that sticks out for me that i remember reading someone commenting on the movie and it as an adaptation of the novel and there apparently i'd forgotten this scene there's a scene where winston the main character has his secret journal that he hides in his wall behind a brick in the movie and i believe in the in the book i can't remember if he hid it in a wall or not but he had a piece of dust that was on the the cover of his journal and that's how he'd know if anyone had found it or not because if that dust was was removed then he he'd know that someone had found the journal and opened it and read it and they were pointing out that just that image that that a, that a piece of dust could be used as a as a a marker that that everything was dusty essentially everything was dirty mm-hmm. that's just one thing in the novel that that gave that but the movie is is drab looking it's shabby looking it's depressing to to just watch um to to see the um just the conditions that these main characters live in and winston winston smith in the movie he is a kind of like a low-level apparatchik, like a party official. He's part of the outer party as opposed to the inner party. And so he's just one of the one of the guys that works for the, the party, and his job is basically rewriting history. He looks at old... He gets directives and then looks at old articles and then changes them to meet the changing narratives that the, the party is putting forward. And so the... One of the main examples that they focus on in the movie is the the party changing the chocolate ration, mm-hmm. and I think if I remember correctly, it had been the the previous article had said it, it was going up to thirty grams or up to thirty five grams, maybe it was thirty to thirty five, and the the directive changed, so now he had to go back and edit the old articles, and it wasn't thirty to thirty five, it was twenty to twenty five. And then the next day, once the news gets released, everyone's happy and says, oh, Winston, did you hear the, the good news? The, the chocolate ration's going up to 25 grams. And everyone's happy about it, even though they were either getting the same or more previously. But everything has to be presented in a positive light. And this constantly throughout the movie, because there are 
TV screens everywhere broadcasting party propaganda. And most of the propaganda is a listing of all the industrial achievements and outputs that the, the party is producing. This many tanks produce, this many fighter jets, this many blah, blah, blah. And it's a, a constant stream of statistics that are always positive and always moving in the right direction to give the people the impression that everything's going well, even though everything isn't going well. Mm-hmm. But the the point I wanted to make about the, the look of the movie and the feel of the movie is there's that that um, that drab and shabby appearance, and we watched some of the special features and and saw that one of the techniques they actually used to do that was that Radford originally wanted to film the movie in black and white, but they decided not to do that. Um, I don't know if Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, I can't remember if he had any say in that or not. I think he he would have liked to do it in black and white too, but he figured out that there was a, a technique to change the, the film stock. Like the original print, is that what the original, um, not, or not the print, the not the negative, but the print? Positive. The positive. There's a, a basically a, a chemical technique. I think you just take it out of the, the solution, the chemical solution, partway through. Mm-hmm. And it, it's essentially taking the full cover, full color of the of what it should be, and it reduces it in half. So it's halfway between black and white and halfway and, and color. So you get this muted, this mute, these muted tones that, that looks... So it is very, um, it's emotion. It's like emotionally dulled because the color is dull. It's emotionally dulled. So the whole film, the the look of the film, puts you in the emotional state and mood that the characters are in. Because in the movie, in the well, the characters in in the movie, the the entire society has has their human emotions dulled, um, their their range of expression and their range of experience dulled to within the limits of what the party says they should be and there are a few things about the the novel and the book and the and the film that <clears throat> the kind of uh, they appear absurd at f- at first sight because well because they are and maybe not realistic but well that's even debatable because i think as the i think the the biggest absurdities that orwell presents are actually actually do take place and um, I'll, I'll give some examples. Well, one is the the defin or the, the dictionary of newspeak, because newspeak is the language that the the party dictates, which is essentially a truncated, amputated version of the English language, the elimination of words. And so Winston, as uh, as a party official with his job dealing with language, he's he's using the ninth edition of the newspeak dictionary. And uh, which is approximately that big, I think. And then the the tenth edition comes out, and it's that big. And then the, one of his colleagues, I think Pearson was his name, is is or might have been another guy, was talking about how great it's going to be for when the eleventh edition comes out, and it's only going to be this big. It's going to have fewer words because the fewer words, the better. And I can't remember um, in the novel, Orwell gives a, a good party justification for the the need and the 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 good reasons for why this language, why English should be truncated. And basically it's uh, by by limiting the the number of words, the, the range of words that people can use, you limit the, the, the number of things that they can think. When you eliminate enough language, then you will eliminate the even the possibility of thought crime, of thinking the wrong thoughts. And this is actually very true. I don't know 
this is one of the things I don't know if it has any actual historical precedent, but the the concept is is totally correct. He's getting across uh, a reality through this fictional mechanism, through this fictional um, conceit of the the truncation of a language. That that actually that actually does happen in in practice, if not in actual form. Like I don't know if, like I said, I don't know if any if any government has actually gone about things in such a strategic and systematic way of of reducing a language like that. I know that some things that have have happened, for instance, Mao simplified Chinese characters to, uh, well, just just that. And there, of course, there, there of course are changes in language that happen. But one of the, the one of the ways that this is shown in the movie, the the effect of this, which I think was really effective, is by, like I said, by reducing a language like that, you reduce you reduce what people can think and what they can therefore what they can remember what they can put into action when you cut off concepts from people those concepts are no longer active in their mind and their imagination and their creativity they don't have access to them to the to the degree and the ease that a person with a normal vocabulary would so when a, a concept is removed from a society it makes it that most that's that much more difficult to access and you see this in a few different ways in the movie and one is when winston's staying at this um this shabby like apartment above a um, like a, a, a curio like pawn shop type place selling just old junk, and he, there's a a peasant like or a, a working woman outside hanging um, hanging up the laundry and she's singing, and and the the guy that works that sells him a little um, like glass thing with a what is it like a coral, coral in it, um, he points out a um, like a, a a print of a, a cathedral in London, and w- do you remember the line that he says? It's uh, oranges. What was it? Oranges. Something. Oh, I can't remember. But this this yeah. just this old rhyme, mm-hmm. like a traditional rhyme, and he hadn't heard of it before. He's like, "Well, where did, where did you know that?" And he's like, "Oh, well, it's something old." And so they're cut off from their history, and he's and this woman that he sees, she's singing, and he says, "Oh, you know, it's so beautiful. I can't believe that." that uh, a, a song that was produced by a machine could sound so beautiful. And I wonder even if the song was produced by a machine, if she was singing a propaganda song, or if she was just singing a like a traditional folk song, and he just assumed that it was written by a machine, because all music is written by a machine. I don't know. Um, but, so you have a couple of these examples, but the one that really struck me the most was when he meets Julia, and they go out for the first time into the forest, and they have an an initial conversation. Julia is a a young party member who works for I think the porno department, which essentially creates um, escapist fiction and and pornography for the lower class for the for the proletariat. If I'm remembering correctly from the book, it's not really explained in detail in the movie. And so she's kind of a young activist. She's part of the kind of the elite of the, the the young party members. She wears her red sash to show her, um, um, what's the word for it? Chastity. So the, a lot of the the young women have have vowed not to not to have sex. And there's a push for artificial insemination, artsem, 
and to to totally eliminate any any uh, to totally eliminate the family and interpersonal relationships essentially with the goal of eventually having a a totally like artificially conceived and birthed population but when they first meet he says he's i guess he's kind of warning her <laughs> about what he's what he likes he says look i hate purity i hate goodness i don't want virtue to exist anywhere i want everyone corrupt so she replies i ought to suit you then i'm corrupt to the core now that's those are quite disturbing lines if taken at face value mm -hmm. until you understand what they actually mean purity doesn't mean purity goodness doesn't mean goodness virtue doesn't mean virtue and corrupt doesn't mean corrupt he hates the party's purity which is the only purity he knows he hates the party's goodness which is the only goodness he knows same with virtue and corruption he wants everyone corrupt well the only thing that's corrupt is is what's against the party he, he he's basically saying he wants to be a human and so she says, well, I, I had to suit you then. I'm corrupt to the core. I'm so corrupt that, uh, that I'm actually a real human being <laughs> as opposed to what the party wants to create out of me. So right there, I, I, and I think all of that is, is captured in just the image of the Newspeak Dictionary and the truncation of concepts and words, which is essentially a truncation of human experience and an attempt to reform human nature in the image of what the party says it will be. And that is explicitly stated later on in the movie by the character O'Brien, who is an inner party member, who essentially traps um, or entraps Winston to expose him as a counter-revolutionary, a follower of Emmanuel Goldstein, and then the the last part of the movie is the the, the torture and re-education of Winston Smith. Now I have stuff to say about that, but does, uh, but we can wait if you guys want to respond or go anywhere else first. Um, yeah, I'll just throw in some uh, some stuff. I had not seen the movie before, so this was uh, like my first real delving into uh, 1984. Uh, I've read bits and pieces of the book, but I never read uh, the full uh, the full thing. Uh, so I I was able to come at this uh, fresh and with uh, really all of the current context of 1984 like in mind as far as what does it actually what does Newspeak look like now? What does truncating the dictionary look like now? Mm -hmm. um, and just on that note, uh, from a perspective not of, like, because I don't know of anybody having actually truncated a dictionary um, for, for that purpose. Uh, I know that we don't have as near, nearly as many words in the English dictionary as there used to be, but it wasn't malicious so far as I understand it. Um, but there's certain words that you can't use in a certain context, which is very similar. And... By that, I mean uh, taking as an example Zionism. For a Zionist, you cannot criticize, uh, you know, the party, uh, the Israeli lobby, APAC, uh, what have you. Um, so that's, that's a very real example of how that plays out in the here and now. 
uh, then you have, you know, all the other things like you can't, uh, well, and this ties in with the newspeak stuff because the newspeak would change, you know, like if I'm remembering correctly, some of the articles that, um, that were being revised, uh, by Winston were like not even that old, like a, a day or maybe they were supposed to be coming out soon. Several months. Yeah. Or, yeah. I didn't notice if there was one that recent. Well, that's why I was wondering about the, the chocolate ration one, because that was, that was, you know, in his hand and he was the one to, to change it, to say it's going up mm-hmm. as opposed to not changing. Uh, and then it was announced the next day. And then there was another thing that he had changed about uh, the, like the, the person who won like a chess tournament and then somebody who got a posthumous award for, you know, valor or whatever it was. And that one also came out, you know, a couple of days after he had made the change. So it's, it wasn't quite clear like how far back it was going or, or if it was just like changing on a day to day basis. Yeah, there yeah. it did each article did have a date on it, but I wasn't paying attention close enough attention to notice the the time changes. But the impression I got was that the articles he was working at were previously published, maybe maybe weeks or months ahead of time, because I think I saw one that was like February nineteen eighty four or something, and the book or the, the, the events take place in I think like April and May. And so there was like a previous announcement that had been made and then they re- they retroactively change that announcement and then make a new announcement about the, yeah. the new news, which overrides the old news. So that makes sense then. So it's, they, they go ahead and basically pre-write the script for, you know, the coming weeks and months. And then as it gets closer, have somebody go in and mm-hmm. edit it. Not that, the, or... not, no, that they, they'd actually published, it had been news. So everyone was expecting the chocolate ration to, to go up to like 35 and then they a new article comes out saying it's going up to 25 mm-hmm. and then they're all happy so they were forced to forget or ignore in their minds that the the ration was already announced to be going up to 35 and now they have to be happy with 25 and pretend that it was actually going up when actually it was going down oh and that's that's like this that's the mind f yeah. of this whole thing mm-hmm. like when we when we finished the movie, the first words out of my mouth was, that was so effed. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because it's so hard for a normal human being to do that kind of mental gymnastics, mm-hmm. uh, to contort their mind to this weird way of, of being that doesn't really, like to where you don't exist, and the only thing that exists is the party, which is not how humans are set up. Uh, which is another aspect of, you know, the whole, um, removing individual personality even to the point where the only thing left is the party. And that was something that O'Brien had said was that, you know, if you cut people off from their family and you cut people off from their history, eventually the only thing left is the party. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's, it's a very intentional, intentional thing, but it's, and it's so insidious and just. Oh, God, it's so effed. <laughs> well, so one of the ways in which this this uh, effed process, this mass gaslighting is conveyed is through these rallies at Victory Square where you have the gigantic images of Big Brother and these propaganda films about uh, various, you know, production um, values and, and numbers that have gone up 
as well as the war against um, Eurasia or e East Asia, as the case may be. It, it constantly shifts. No, we're really at war with Eurasia. No, it's really East Asia. We've always been at war with so-and-so and such-and-such. -and -such. Yes. And uh, what, you're, what you're watching is the, uh, the, the hystericization of large numbers of people who are made to watch these uh, pieces of propaganda on big screens. And there's this kind of uh, incitement to uh, turning off your mind and your, your thinking about what it is you're seeing and fully indulging in the, you know, death to Goldstein, death to, to uh, you know, the Eurasia, the traitors, death. And so this fervor that's created in the minds of, of the uh, propagandized, uh, the, the outer party members who were, I guess, invited to these rallies, um, has the effect of shutting off their minds and completely um, kind of fostering an emotional uh, connection to the propaganda that they've received. And this is borne out in in the work that they do, which is sitting in these these cubicles in these Kafka esque uh, rooms, where they're they've become the ultimate technocratic uh, pawns in revising news, in 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 putting up posters uh, for Big Brother, in going to committee meetings where they're being told why artificial insemination. Uh, the destruction of the family uh, is all for the good of the party. And um, made me think a little bit about all of the, the lies um, that we've been seeing uh, from uh, the, the kind of left-leaning media or the mainstream media in the past few years. And, and based on those lies, the hysterical attacks on anyone, particularly in social media, who would dare question the, the prevailing narrative. And whenever that prevailing narrative gets ultimately proven to be uh, a false one, a lie, uh, it, it, just, it just kind of disappears off of the radar of the mass consciousness of, of the, the population you're on to the next big lie that is that is made to rile you up and is is amplified and and so that sort of thing is one of the delicious gems about watching this film is that you can see if not an exact analogy uh, although there there were some exact analogies then you, you can see at least a a, a metaphor or a um, a correlation uh, between what Orwell is saying in this story and events as they're unfolding in real time. Um, and to discover these things for yourself, to see how insightful and relevant uh, all of these scenes, all of these bits of, of dialogue are to the current day is really, you know, that, that's, what, that's what excellent art is uh, in part. Um, that's what it's designed to do. It's, 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 it should be a, a kind of a mirror uh, held up to reality itself. 
uh, and convey truths that might not otherwise be so well described um, as, as you might find in a work of nonfiction or, or a dry analysis of something. Um, I wanted to read one quote. This is actually from the book. I don't recall it being uh, stated in the film exactly, even though it's there in some form or another. Uh, and this is a, a speech by O'Brien, who is an inner party member and one of the kind of uh, architects of the way Big Brother functions in 1984 in, in the story. He says, Now I will tell you the answer to my question. It is this. The party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We are not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power, pure power. What pure power means, you will understand presently. We are different from the oligarchies of the past in that we know what we are doing. All the others, even those who resembled ourselves, were cowards and hypocrites. The German Nazis and the Russian communists came very close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives. They pretended, perhaps they even believed, that they had seized power unwillingly and for a limited time, and that just around the corner there lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means. It is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. Now you begin to understand me. So... How many times uh, have we looked at power grabs and uh, the perception management of events, particularly in the U.S., but in other places, that for all intents and purposes are incredible uh, and successful attempts at accruing power? And it, it's just like O'Brien says in 1984, the, the revolution is being used to implement the dictatorship. Uh, we've said it before. Uh, wokeism is, is, it's fake. It's a brand. It's a tool. It's a, uh, a means to an end. And that end is, for those who would uh, use it and manipulate it on a mass scale, a, a weapon, a... Uh, a means to accrue power. And all you have to do is uh, appropriate the terms of wokeism, put a few policies in place and executive orders, and there you have your own ink sock. You have your own uh, version of, of 1984 that you are uh, implementing and actualizing step by step by step by step. So... Uh, that's another one of the kind of uh, central lessons to this that that Orwell managed to see um, over 73, 74 years ago when he wrote this thing. Um, and 
it's it's something to be um, it's something to be considered quite seriously because uh, this this is a it's as though he tapped into a blueprint, a template uh, for the ways in which totalitarian systems get created, uh, the psychological dynamics that are um, that are involved, the uh, the 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 political machinery that's in place, um, and it's also the reason I think, in part, why 1984 has, in recent years, uh, become a kind of revived in the minds of many people. Although we can talk about how it's been appropriated or misappropriated by by different sides of the political spectrum, in in looking at it as a text to explain our reality. Uh, the, the portrayal of O'Brien by Richard Burton was phenomenal. I mean, it was Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> Silence of the Lambs level creepy mm -hmm. and, and powerful. Uh, as he was, he didn't use that exact speech, but he used bits and bits and pieces in the yeah. movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was, it was so perfectly delivered just this, and this was something that, uh, the director, I think said in the, uh, special features mm -hmm. that he wanted Richard Burton to have this almost sympathetic, uh, well, aspect. Like kind. And yeah. This, the kind torturer, the kind torturer that's, that's slightly sympathetic as he tortures you to insanity. Uh, which was just freaking brilliant, and I think is pretty close to accurate uh, in a lot of ways mm -hmm. uh, to how some of these people are uh, and what they what they really think and look and act like is just uh, it's for um, your own good yeah. that we're doing this. Well, I don't even know if it was if it's so much for for your own good because he's a lot more cynical than that. I don't think he he'd even I don't think he'd even um use that as a line cuz uh that's something that you that, that's a manipulation to that you tell people in order to get them to to do something it's like it's for your own good no it was like the quote that you that you read it's for torture power. is for the yeah torture is for the purpose of power right. and uh or for for the purpose of torture mm -hmm. and <clears throat> this is something that uh that stuck out for me watching the film this time is that what like the first two thirds of it I think is is pretty normal and then then he gets caught basically in the last the last act and so for the first two thirds of the movie you're presented with a couple levels like you're presented with the propaganda image which is totally over the top and like you know obvious obviously a lie to an observer but then you're then you're you're given the reality of of life you see a bit of what the the proles life is like um a bit of the the disdain that the party has for the proles and then you get the the life of winston and these these outer party members and a glimpse of the inner party when winston gets uh, invited to o'brien's office um which is immaculate and uh and he has wine and he has to explain to winston what wine is and so you but you have this image and it's it's disturbing but not horrifying um it it basically just looks like a you know a corrupt and 
and impoverished society with the, the, and with a mendacity to it so so there's disturbing elements to it and but that all leads up to the arrest of Winston and Julia where they're in the apartment that he's renting and the they they hear uh, basically a, an alarm and the the, the the print of the cathedral falls off the wall and there's the the TV camera there's or uh, the TV screen and camera there's big brother watching them and a voice starts giving them orders and they're they're both naked and then they get swarmed by the secret police and from that moment on it's like you're plunged into uh plunged into an even deeper level of hell than you were in for the whole whole part of the movie and the way the way i saw that was um to rephrase something you said Ilan, about how kind of prescient um orwell was in presenting this blueprint the way i'd put it is that he saw the essence of totalitarianism and that is just pure pure psychopathy because up until that point there's still a mask and it's all about the mask it's all about here's the image we want to project here's our propaganda here is the narrative we want to proje project here's how we're re rewriting history um a total uh like disdain for or disregard for truth and facts like taking some guy that died in the war uh 15 years ago and then using his image as a war hero who just died in the war like you know a couple weeks ago just creating reality out of nothing and well creating a pseudo reality out of nothing and then they're arrested and they get taken to the the prison and it follows winston from then on and like i said it's just a lower depth of hell from then on that is totally totally stripped of any mask of sanity and this is so what when when orwell is putting words into o'brien's mouth like the the one about all previous attempts and even the people that looked like us have haven't realized the truth he's 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 importing into o'brien the the essence of the situation what it actually is even if it's never stated outright he's saying this is the reality behind it this is what's really going on and one of the things that he says there's a whole bunch of great lines in his interactions with Winston as he's torturing him. Mm -hmm. And one is that is, is this, he says, no one escapes Winston. There are no martyrs here. All the confessions made here are true. We do not destroy the heretic because he resists us. As long as he resists us, we never destroy him. We make him one of ourselves before we kill him. We make his brain perfect before we blow it out. And there are a number of disturbing lines like that that O'Brien has. And mm -hmm. this is one of those things. It's kind of like the, the 2 plus 2 equals 5. Like um, 2 plus 2 equals 5. It's one of those things that you, th that you think is so absurd that, it, it's, that he's trying to just make a point out of it. Until you realize that there are actually people like that. And there has been a whole discussion on Twitter over the last year of critical math theorists trying to argue that 2 plus 2 can equal 5. That uh, that the the laws of math are are a, 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 or and the laws and rules and practice of math are simply a you know uh, a racist white supremacist construction and there's there's no actual objectivity and well they wouldn't wouldn't say that exactly but they'd say that 
that you that there are situations where two plus two equals five, which is a direct quote from O'Brien, who says sometimes it's five, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's and everything at all, uh, everything at once. Mm -hmm. But so this this revelation, this uh, like stripping of the veils, the, this um, this removal of the mask of sanity, while maybe in in reality is unrealistic it it makes sense in this fictional context because the fiction the, the i think the purpose of fiction is to show the truth so he's just like with the newspeak dictionary he's orwell is is showing you the truth of the situation with an example that might not be totally congruent to what would actually happen in the world but by discerning by divining the essence of the situation he's able to present it with this with, like in this stark reality and it all of a sudden it doesn't become that much more um like unbelievable it's it's it becomes more believable even even if it w if, even if it would never manifest with such a like in such an ideal type even if there was no no party that would explicitly um stay th say things the way that O'Brien does but the 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 level of well, all I can say is that O'Brien's philosophy is is pure psychopathy. It's like it's psychopathy without any um, any shame about presenting itself as it is. And watching that scene, and particularly particularly that quote that I just read, in addition to a number of the other ones in the last bit of the film, reminded me of a couple of things that I just read, um, like the night before in Political Ponderology. So Lobachevsky's ta talking about pathocracy, which is his name for a totalitarian system. So the, the system, the party system in 1984 is a pathocracy, or that's what Lobachevsky would call it. Um, I'll, I'll describe, well, I'll read a paragraph first of him describing what a pathocracy is, or at least one feature of it. He says, in a pathocracy, all leadership positions down to village headman and community cooperative managers, not to mention the directors of police units, special services personnel, police personnel, and activists in the pathocratic party, must be filled by individuals with corresponding psychological deviations, which are inherited as a rule. And by inherited in that situation, in that context, he means a personality disorder. After such a system has lasted several years, 100% of all cases of essential psychopathy are involved in pathocratic activity. They are considered the most loyal, even though some of them were formerly involved on the other side in some way. Under such conditions, no area of social life can develop normally, whether in economics, culture, science, technology, administration, etc. Pathocracy progressively paralyzes everything, progressively intrudes everywhere, and dulls everything. That's why um, that one of those first observations I made about just the color of the movie I thought was so accurate is that in a situation like that, hu like your human nature, your human, your, your human feeling, the, the capacity for feeling is dulled. And that is, so that's portrayed visually in just the color of the film. And then the quote that, uh, that that leads to that, uh, that I was reminded of when listening to O'Brien Again, in reference to pathocracy, Lobachevsky writes, uh, the goal, the goal of pathocracy, um, I'll, I'll rephrase it, or I'll, I'll reorganize the sentence. The goal, is never the, the goal is never openly admitted. 
and that goal is forcing human minds to incorporate pathological experiential methods and thought patterns, and consequently accepting such rule. The goal is conditioned by pathological egotism, and the, and the possibility of accomplishing it strikes the pathocrats as not only indispensable, but feasible. Thousands of activists must therefore participate in this work. However, time and experience confirm what a psychologist may have long foreseen. The entire effort produces results so very limited that it is reminiscent of the labors of Sisyphus. The authors and executors of this program are incapable of understanding that the decisive factor making their work difficult is the fundamental nature of normal human beings, the majority. So what Lobachevsky is essentially saying is that O'Brien, O'Brien's goal and what he actually achieves with Winston is impossible in the long run, impossible, maybe in the long run, maybe in the long run, impossible, or maybe even impossible. Like maybe, maybe he would even say that the, the very scenario of 1984 itself and what happens to Winston is impossible. I don't know, but, um, that, so there's, there's that which is kind of a, a positive thing that human nature is so so instinctual because it's human nature that there are certain limits past which like you can't push it there are certain obstacles that you run up against when you try to to shape human minds in the way you want them to be you can't turn 100% of the population into psychopaths it just doesn't work there will be a susceptible portion of the population that will have their minds um, like corrupted to a certain degree, but there will always always be another significant uh, part of the population that can't be can't be um, uh, that can't be influenced and affected to that degree. But what Orwell is showing is that this is the goal. Mm-hmm. This is actually what they want to do, and that's what O'Brien says. Well, his philosophy is that um, the human mind is infinitely malleable. We can do anything we want with your mind. And that's why he says that, uh, well, one of the reasons that he says that we never kill heretics, first we turn them into one of us, and then we shoot them in the head. And that is, uh, well, so it's a, it's a taking off of the mask of sanity, is that this is, this is the way that pathocrats, that, pe- that the, the party sees human beings as these malleable creatures that they can turn into images of themselves, and there's nothing that that any of us can do about it. And so, like Winston, the, the, with, they see us as just these these animals, like they say about the proles, like O'Brien says about the proles, that uh, they're just animals, you know. And they they need to be lied to, and and basically we need them to do work for us. And uh, it's a completely cynical view of of human nature and of humanity, and that. Those aspects of of um, of the philosophy are what underlies social justice, like critical social justice theory. What underlies critical theory? The idea it is a relativistic philosophy that there is no truth, um, that that there is no human nature. Minds are malleable. That biology is malleable. Um, that biology do- maybe doesn't even exist. It's a social construction, this social constructivist view of reality that that the only the only reason we are the way we are is because society made us that way. So if we change society, we can reshape humanity into whatever image we want. 
and that's the that's the philosophy of of the party in 1984 and that's the philosophy of the social justice theorists today the social justice theories ha- theorists haven't uh, haven't achieved power in the to the degree that the party has in 1984 but through the long march through the institutions they're they're getting there you know they they are in the all of the institutions they're in the the schools from like K to 12 to university to post grad studies all education all corporate all major corporations and even like uh, um, medium sized corporations businesses um, the politics they're all over politics and it's pretty like it seems pretty much inescapable now and yeah, I'll just leave that there. Well, if, uh, there's uh, two things that I wanted to say. Uh, the first one, just to interject, uh, a very recent development was from Hasbro, the children's toy company, who came out and said that they're no longer going to be making a Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head because that's restricting children's ability to reflect their own experiences and to create same-sex families and blah 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 so that is uh like just how insidious this is at this moment which is ridiculous because mr potato head you can change yes <laughs> what they're wearing <laughs> and what faces they have they're the, mr potato head is like the the perfect um trans toy i'd think yeah because you can just take it and yeah like you said like you know take the earring ears off of mrs potato head and put it on mr potato head because it's funny seeing him with earrings in the top hat. Um, so that's that was one uh, thing. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention was uh, the changing of history uh, with Newspeak, how they said that, you know, one day, you know, we were at war with Eurasia. We've always been at war with Eurasia. And the next day it was, we're at war with East Asia. We've always been at war with East Asia. And doing the retroactive change of history. Well, we can see that today with some of the, uh, the changing of what is and is not acceptable speech. Um, was it somebody in some position uh, had, I can't remember where, but they they had a somewhat racist tweet 15 years ago. This was like a head of Black Lives Matter or something like that. Uh, again, this was very recent, who uh, had to resign because of this tweet you know, 15 years ago. I didn't look it up to see what it actually was, but because it probably would have been innocuous. But um, it's what's acceptable today will not be acceptable tomorrow. And so we have to look back to yesterday to make sure that we conform to the standards of today. And and it's, it's that weird warping of, of history and, and, you know, what is and isn't acceptable that that is a direct, uh, I don't know, a transplantation of like 1984 concepts into reality. Well, the, one of the quotes that speaks directly to that is every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. 
And um, I was thinking about the two plus two equals four uh, bit of dialogue and how this, uh, this common core system of teaching math came into uh, existence and prominence about eight or ten years ago, which is, um, according to all accounts by uh, veteran educators, completely confusing and, and ass-backwards. And um, even Bill Gates, who had uh, in, in some way been supportive of Common Core, came out and said, oh, well, yeah, I guess that doesn't, it, it didn't work as well as we would have liked. But the damage has been done. You've had years of Common Core indoctrination, two plus two equals five. Well, let's uh, just not even like <clears throat> buy into his bullshit. He knew exactly what he was doing and he did it intentionally. Yes. Um, and getting back to that quote, because I, uh, the, the two plus two, um, well, you know what? I actually, even more important than that, uh, something that you had mentioned a little bit ago, Harrison, about the, um, the, the lack of power that the pathocracy has ultimately to, uh, to squash humanity or the, the spirit of humanity. Uh, there's a moment where O'Brien and um, and Winston are uh, in the the torture room, uh, room 101, and he Winston actually says, "You you won't succeed. You ultimately will not be able to to do what you set out to do." And you know O'Brien just continues um, his his kind of oppressive uh, language and, and, and programming that he wants Winston to, uh, to accept. And um, I think it bears mentioning that uh, a lot of this kind of force of malevolence that we've seen uh, is conveyed almost on a metaphysical level. Uh, there are foreshadowings of the confrontation that O'Brien and, and Winston have towards the end of the film um, that are just presented. And they, they kind of exist outside of uh, the space and time of the narrative to suggest that, that these things are already in motion. These ideas of psychological and spiritual oppression are already there, even if they haven't been fully implemented. And... Um, the there's a, a scene where O'Brien uses a very specific way of um, of scaring the crap out of Winston that that are that is um, that is very personal that only O'Brien as you know th this kind of powerful figure in the party could have some knowledge of some insight about Winston to be able to use against him, to be able to torture him with. And it suggested to me that, you know, there, uh, all of this has this kind of um, negative power or force that uh, doesn't only, isn't only designed to work on this macro level, but, but also kind of penetrates deep into the psyche of individuals or attempts to on a very deeply personal level. Um, you know, the, 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 the tagline to the movie Poltergeist in 1982 was, 
you know, it knows what scares you, right? So uh, th this O'Brien is this kind of uh, almost, you know, calm, fatherly, uh, demonic figure. He is demonic, uh, except that he's, he's so controlled and so uh, knowledgeable that he's able to pinpoint that very thing that he thinks is going to uh, help to break Winston. And the ending is uh, debatable as to whether or not he succeeded or maybe not debatable. We can get into that here. Um, but I, it, it's interesting to me that, that, that the film also speaks to uh, almost uh, apolitical, uh, non-propagandistic means to, uh, to, to dig the teeth into to dig its teeth into a, an individual's very uh, being, into the into the darkest recesses of their of their deepest fears, and um, and penetrate them, and twist them, and and turn them around uh, for the direction of the party. Yeah, I think that's all I have to say about it. Um, maybe a, a final thought, just. Just an interesting thing, maybe to wrap up if you guys want to, unless you guys want to go further, about the, the film itself, which was really cool, was that it was filmed in April and May of 1984, which was when the book takes takes place. And there was even one scene that they managed to film, apparently just by happenstance, on the same day that it, that it occurred in the book. So it's kind of a, it was almost like the, the fates lined up to, to create this movie um, back then, the year of my birth. Um, <clears throat> the, and the, even the story of how it got there, like uh, Rad, Radford wrote the script in like three weeks. He had, he had like five weeks to write the script in order to get funding and managed to write the script and then got uh, Richard Branson. Mm -hmm. the Virgin Records guy, mm -hmm. to fund it. And he's just like, okay, yeah, sure, <laughs> I'll fund it. And so it got it got thrown together and was um, completely, all this, there's no special effects in the film. It's all um, in-camera effects, so everything's practical. Everything that you see was actually done, maybe with a, a camera technique or, or trick for one or two scenes, but everything is... Um, is real that you see there's no green screens there's nothing uh chopped in it's uh, it was all filmed as you see it and one of the things that stuck out from the special features from the interviews was that uh in the crowds at the beginning when they have the what is it the three minutes hate how many minutes is it five, five minutes hate was uh they had they had a crowd of like a thousand extras in the in this exploded out what was it a, a bbc building or a Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so this wide open building, which wasn't very structurally sound, but they managed to make it work. So they had all these people in there, and I think the the director, Radford, said that they had all these people, and and you know, with these hysterical screams and and letting the like uh, letting that rage come out of them. And he says after every take, there would be like ten people who had passed out and couldn't do it any longer, and it was amazing to him, for him to see that even though they were acting, even though this this was a um, this was fake. They were pretending the effect of having that many people get on that emotional level at the same time was enough to 
shut <laughs> several people down um, on a on a very basic level. So uh, they're even even pretending to do something like that. It has an effect on the like the actual biology, the, f- the physiology of the people involved. So imagine what it's like, what what that very same process does in reality. That um, I think that's just a an example of Orwell getting something right, which is kind of I mean you don't you don't have to be a genius to to uh, to get that right. But just the the madness of crowds, just the 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 strength of of those the, the emotion of crowds and getting caught up in group hysteria is very strong, and that is that is a technique. It's a it's a deliberate cynical exploitation of human nature for for the purposes of the of the people exploiting that fact. So uh, recommended book, a recommended movie. Uh, yeah, like like Alan said earlier, we should. Definitely watch it. There aren't very many. There are plenty of movies for, that are about, that have like evil Russians in them, of course, right? Because of the history of the Cold War. There are plenty of movies about Nazism and and like conditions in Nazi Germany. There are very few me- movies that actually are about communism or socialism. And... 1984 is one of them, even though it's a it's essentially science fiction. Um, we talked about Mr. Jones last week, which is uh, uh, one of the the few other ones. There are several in other languages. There, there are several in I'll, I'll say that there are several foreign language films like Lives of Others, but very oddly there are very few American movies that are actually critical of communism, even though there are tons of movies with evil Russians in them, mm-hmm. which is kind of strange. So. Maybe we'll find all of the all of the movies that exist and talk about them because there aren't very many um, in the future. But yeah, any any final thoughts from you guys? Yeah, just uh, just that there have been a, a number of um, movies that uh, and books that have been kind of brought into public awareness uh, recently and referred to and and in use. Um, there's also "It Can't Happen Here" by Sinclair Lewis. Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. And um, I've seen or read most of the books or adaptations of, of these um, of these stories, but I would say this is easily one of, if not the most powerful. Uh, just, a, just a note that um, it seems to me that Alan Moore's V for Vendetta uh, also owes a debt to 1984, even if it takes a more kind of right-wing version of this phenomena um, in a future dystopian version of uh, the United Kingdom and England, and uh, does it very well, um, as I'm sure a lot of... It's got of, John Hurt in it, too. And it's got John Hurt in it. Actually, play, that's right. He's playing He's playing the he's playing O'Brien. <laughs> right. And, and it does a very good job of it. Uh, so that that was a bit of brilliant casting on the part of the producers of V for Vendetta. Um, we're going to link to the show notes an article called New York Times Calls on the Biden Administration to Appoint a Reality Czar to Help Solve Our, quote, Reality Crisis, end quote, uh, which is a, a New York Times article that was um, put out just a few weeks ago. Uh, so... The, the comments that the SOD editor put on it and the, 
the ideas that are being put forth in this New York Times article uh, speak a lot to exactly what uh, 1984 has been um, trying to explain to us. And um, so, so I think that's a, that'll be a good read for anyone who's, who's paying attention to this, uh, this story. But then one last thing, there, there have been articles in previous weeks on how people are misusing the word Orwellian, mm. when, <laughs> which is, a, a to, it's a totally Orwellian article because people are using Orwellian correctly and here's this Orwellian article saying that, that people aren't using it correctly and it's just, it's a, it's kind of taking 1984 and squaring it <laughs> It's well. They're making they're making two and two equal five by uh, by trying to trying to appropriate the word Orwellian to make it mean something they want it to mean. They're turning it into newspeak so that people can't see that they that that, that they themselves are the Orwellian party. Well, let's everybody we. Uh... We hope you enjoyed the show. We encourage you to uh, read the book, watch the film, and um, thanks for listening. Take care, everyone.